relationships. As we look at Genesis 1 and 2, I think it's important also to remember Genesis 1 is a chronological account of creation. Genesis 2 is a more descriptive account of man. And so that's what we're going to kind of center in on. A lot of times there's a lot of debate between Genesis and 1 and 2 and uh, supposed differences. But uh, if you can see, Genesis chapter 1 is more of a wide-angle lens and Genesis chapter 2 more of a snapshot of man. Then it kind of helps you to understand that a little bit better. Uh, as we look at this, I think it's important for us to establish uh, what we believe the Imago Day is. And this is found in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And let's read that, and then we'll skip over to chapter 2. Verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in the Imago Dei. Uh, many scholars would say as he, he uses uh, the word our uh, to describe even, we see a hint of even the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, even at this point. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot of debate today in our society over what is life, what is sanctified as life, what are the, what, or excuse me, what determines what the uh, what is to be acceptable and what is not acceptable? What is the difference between animals and humans? Many would say there's not really any difference. Some would say there's not much difference. They would use the term there is a degree of difference between humans and chimpanzees or apes or monkeys. And the term degree is this. It's simply to better understand that. If you look at the species, if you look at dogs, you could see here's a Great Dane, here's a bulldog, here's a chihuahua. And if you took the chihuahua and the Great Dane, you'd say they're, they're different, but they're different by degree. They're still both dogs, but they're different only in degree. And so theoretically, they could probably even reproduce and perhaps start another breed, but still within its own kind. Now, if you take a cow and that chihuahua, no one would say that's just a degree of difference. I mean, eventually, uh, they can be like one another. You wouldn't say that they could reproduce. Okay, so the degree simply distinguishes within the breed that there is a difference in degree of the uh, species itself, the type of dog or the type of cow, but kind mean they're separate. They're of a different kind. So when we look at man we, and animals, we see that they are different in kind, okay? There is a difference in man. There is a difference in animal. Now, uh, some would say the difference is uh, the spirit of the soul that resonates within us, that God breathed life into man, and, and there's certainly some validity to that. But I believe you have to go a step further because animals also, uh, the Scripture sometimes refer to them uh, having a soul, but they are not this, the divine image of God. In verse 26 and 27, man was created in the divine image of God. The image of God. That's what separates us. That's what makes us different from animals. Now, if you go along the thought pattern, the mindset, that it's simply the complexity. It's the complexity of the animal as, a ver as, a, uh, as opposed to the complexity of the human. And that men and women are more capable 
of making moral discernments, of simply having greater intellectual capacity, and that uh, one day that probably wouldn't be that big a difference. If you go down that road, what that means then is that you would have to say that a severely retarded child would not be as valued as a monkey or an ape who have been trained, who've been trained to do mathematics on some level or some degree, who've been trained to communicate. So we have to be careful when we simply say, well, there's a complexity difference. No, there's a difference in kind. And the distinguishing difference is that man has been created in the image of God. No other creature can say that. No other part of the creation can say that they were created within the image of God. We have been given the capacity, the ability, and the opportunity to worship God, to know Him, and have His Spirit literally dwell within us. The divine image, the divine Spirit that comes within us when we so choose to let Him rule our lives. So there is a distinguishable difference, a very important difference, when we look at the difference between man and animal. And it is the Imago Day. So I want us to establish that right up front. Now, with that said, let's move on to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look here in just a moment. And uh, we're going to see, uh, matter of fact, as we go through this story, and part of it has already uh, occurred, we see that God creates the perfect man. We'll see later where God will create the perfect woman. And I know uh, women have been looking for the perfect man ever since. And men have been looking for the perfect women, woman ever since, and it doesn't exist. The sin nature has come, and we, we're all fallen. Uh, we all have shortcomings, and we'll continue to do so. They lived in the perfect place. Talk about the perfect home. They had the perfect home, the perfect climate, and presumably maybe even the perfect relationship. But here they are in the perfect place with the perfect man, the perfect woman. And we see that later on, as we'll go through Genesis chapter 3, they forfeit it. And we'll see why. It's forfeited. But as we look at that, I think it's important for us to, to remember and establish that, you know, it's, it's not just getting the things that you so desire, you so want, that really establishes the success of a marriage, the success of a relationship. And this is such proof that is given to us right here. You never wonder what Adam was thinking uh, when he had Eve, the perfect woman there, probably the perfect looking, the perfect acting. Everything was perfect. And you ever wonder what his lines pretty probably were? Where did some of these lines come from? Well, I think they probably started with Adam. Here's ten pickup lines that Adam probably used with the one woman on earth. You know you're the only one for me. Number nine, do you come here often? Number eight, trust me, baby, this was meant to be. Number seven, look around here, girl. All the other guys around here are animals. Number six, I really feel like you're a part of me. Number... Five, honey, you were made for me. Number four, why don't you come over to my place sometime and we can name some animals. And if you read Genesis 2.21, this will really make sense. Honey, you're the girl of my dreams. Number two, I like a girl who doesn't mind being ribbed. I thought that was a little hokey too. Number one, you're the apple of my eye. I'd like to see you do better. Anyway. Let's move on to the text here. Genesis chapter 2, beginning with the 18th verse. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I'll make someone 
uh, who is a partner and who is suitable, who's complementary. Now, what that word does not mean in the Hebrew, it does not mean alike. Doesn't mean that we God has created someone just like us. Probably a good analogy would be understanding the North Pole and the South Pole. They're different. They're in a different location, but they are necessary for each other. Okay, and our our world is is necessary to have a North Pole and a South Pole, the Earth that we live on. So when you see that word suitable, it is not the sense of someone just like me. Someone who, who feels like I do about everything and who responds like I do. Really, that's not what we need. That really is just a selfishness within us that we so desire. As a matter of fact, there's, a, there's another uh, movie clip I was thinking about using. And uh, it's a, kind of a spoof on a drug that you can take that will make your uh, wife more masculine. She'll like football. She'll want to eat what you want to eat. And uh, she'll grunt and snort and all these kind of things and never get her feelings hurt. Okay? And sometimes we think that's what we want. And sometimes women, you think, I really wish he could be so much more sensitive. I wish he could be more feminine. Well, you had those opportunities and you passed on them, quite frankly. That's not really what you want. It's not really what we need. But it's just like we'll see in this story. So many times we'll come in and we'll be tempted by what we don't have. And we'll take risk on things that we don't really need. But because of the desire in our flesh... For something different, for something that has a different look, because it's not ours. Often we find ourselves drawn in that manner. As we go along with the scripture, let me read the remainder of the story here. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the air, to all the beasts of the field. But for Adam... No suitable helper or partner was found. So the Lord caused him to fall asleep. And when he was sleeping, he took from his side. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, it means to take from his side over the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib. And he was taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she shall be taken out of the man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked or innocent, and they felt no shame, no fear of exploitation. In chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden. Now, what we see here is the beginning of the fall, the misrepresentation of God's word. This is where it all began right here. We see right here in verse one, the serpent, who was the most crafty of them. Satan comes and speaks through him and he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the world in, in the garden? Doubt is cast upon the word of God. Now, we didn't literally have a Bible written, obviously, then. But it was the word, it's the word of instruction that God had given. And you see the fall beginning right here with a statement. Did he really say that? Today, we are often tempted or we are often uh, given the opportunity by many to doubt the word of God. I picked up a book. I was uh, at Barnes and Noble last night and picked up a, a, a book that said 101 myths of Scripture. 
And uh, most of them were all in the Old Testament. And uh, I've, I've done some study and reading of ancient history and ancient religions. And what was in, in, interesting to me is some of the assessments I've seen before, but some there was no documentation. There was no evidence. And it was simply refuted because uh, particularly sometimes there was an Egyptian myth or there was another type of myth that had been stated. And, but there was no documentation of any resources. But it was a dispersion and it was casting doubt upon the word of God. Well, that's been going on since day one. That's been going on ever since Satan had the opportunity. And he started right here, casting doubt. Is that really right? Is that really true? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And actually, God had not said, You must not touch it. Here's the first a time of form of exaggeration right here. But said you you will die. And then what does the serpent say? He said, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. You will not surely die. Now, some will say when they take this passage, and this was one of the myths uh, that was exposed here supposedly, um, Adam didn't die. Eve didn't die. And they didn't die automatically. But you know what I begin, believe happened? As sin entered into their uh, pure bodies, Cells begin to die. The process, just as you and I, every day, there's a piece of us dying. We are on a, a long-term project, basically, to die. Every day, we die a little more. We become a little older. And death is inevitable. That's what occurred here. Death became inevitable. The process of death began that moment. But what does the serpent say? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, we see the doubt. Now we see the denial, the denial. He says, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Matter of fact, let me start right back here in verse four. He says, you will not surely die. It's a distortion. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God and you will know good and evil. Well, the truth was they would know good and evil. They would become aware but they did not become like God. That was an act of distortion. That was a word of distortion. And we see it still used today. The denial, the distortion, and ultimately it leads to the temptation. Now that the word of God has come about by being discredited and doubt has been cast, denial has been, uh, had been confessed, and distortion has occurred, we move on and we see in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, for food, isn't it interesting? Even then, if I can just have that. I mean, the physical desire for food, the physical desire of our flesh, I just want that. I want some more of that. I've never tried that. Here's something she's not ever tried. She's seen it. And we have no reason to think that she's not been satisfied, that she's not been content until the word of God becomes distorted, until denial is cast upon it. And then begins to wonder, well, that is attractive. It is different. And matter of fact, one commentator even said it this way. She probably, Satan probably appealed to a sense of fairness. Now, why would God want that? Why God, does God get to be the one who gets to decide? 
Why can't I know what good and evil? Why can't I be like God? Probably a sense of fairness with play. We see that today, don't we? Sometimes. Well, that's not fair. Why do they get this and I don't? Why, why does this happen to me and not to others? A sense of fairness. I think I ought to be able to take matters in my own hand. I think I deserve this. This is for me. This is right. This is fair. Think of where that comes from. We see the temptation for food. And then we see the temptation of the eyes. It's attractive to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Our society, our world, literally markets the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the stomach. And it says, you know what? If you will participate, if you'll get this, you'll be happy. You'll have everything you want and everything you need. This is where life is. This is where purpose comes from. And Satan is using that ancient old trick even today. And then he appeals to the ego. Also desirable for gaining wisdom. And he took some of it and she ate it. Wisdom. Appeal to my ego. I'll have knowledge. I'll have understanding. I'll have power. And so she partakes. And then we see she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and ate it. Hey, ladies, let me tell you right now. I think, I, I think this is more indicting to the man than it is to the woman. Do you see what it said right there? It said, and the husband who was with her. Matter of fact, the Hebrew said he was probably right there, the way it's described, right there next to her. He was a participant. He let her go first. You know, when I was a kid, uh, back at the farm, I remember my cousin would come, and Kelly, and I loved Kelly, but Kelly was a little slower than me, and I could always get him to do things that I thought would be cool, but I'd get in a lot of trouble before I'd get him to do it. And I remember one time, uh, I said, Kelly, there's a big wasp nest up there in the barn. Here's what we need to do. I'm going to get that old sheet over there, and I'm going to drench it in diesel, and then light it on fire. We'll put it on top of this cane pole, and you stick it up there and burn those wasps out. I said, man, he goes, you don't think we'll get stuck? No, no, it'll be fine. This thing will kill him. And so I, I did that. I took the old sheet and I dipped it in diesel. I lit it on fire. I put it on that cane pole. I said, here you go, Kelly. Go get it. And I got behind a tree. And he went in the barn. And you imagine what happened. We didn't burn a barn down. That was good news. Uh, he got stung a couple times. And uh, things didn't go quite as well. I got in trouble. And I was thinking, but I didn't do anything. He did it on his own. It, I had done it. I was there with him, and I was one that encouraged him to do it. I just wanted him to take on the penalty. And I was just going to see what happened. That's kind of what Adam did. He's kind of a weenie. He's <laughs> right here with her. Instead of being the man who provides, protects. Try that apple. So she eats it. Doesn't look like anything happens. She's got a smile on her face. Then he partakes. Hey, let me show you what spiritual leadership is not. That's it right there. You go ahead. You go ahead. That's exactly what occurred there. So uh, let us not be too hard on Eve when we look at this story. And then we know the story. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. Their innocence and their purity was gone. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. We see it all started with a doubt of God's word, with the denial, then the distortion. And then the temptation came, as the book of James tells us, to flee temptation. They chose not to flee it, 
The temptation for food, the temptation of the eyes, the temptation of the ego. What can we glean from this? What can we learn? I believe there's four principles that we can learn. How God still desires for us to have divine relationship with Him and with each other. First of all, through fellowship with God and with each other. Fellowship. We see that as the serpent came, he had limited access to God. But what's interesting as we look at chapter 1 and chapter 3, every time that God is referred to there with man, it is referred to as Yahweh God, the covenant name of God, the relationship name of God. But when we see the interaction of the serpent and God, the name Elohim, God of power, is used. It's a non-covenant term. It means most powerful God, the one only God, but not the relationship God. To have relationship with God, to have fellowship with God means not just access, which Satan's access was limited, but to have full access, also to have full commitment and intimacy. Intimacy will never come with God with limited access and no commitment. It comes through the commitment that we make. Just as he made a commitment to Adam and Eve and just as he has made a covenant commitment to us, a covenant of grace as we receive it, so can we know full fellowship. Number two, recognizing that we are blessed. Just as Adam and Eve were in a beautiful place, in a beautiful relationship, they didn't focus on the blessing. They focused on what they didn't have. That's the kiss of death when we start to focus on what we don't have instead of being thankful for what we do have. Living by faith through the truth of God's Word. Letting the Word of God determine our course of life, our purpose in our moral compass, as opposed to determining it on our own. And number four, recognizing and fleeing temptation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it comes. Marriage teaches us loyalty, self-restraint, meekness. It refines us. As Martin Luther said, marriage is more refining than a monastery. I believe he's right. It is refining. So you say, well, that's all well and good, but practically... How can I implement some of that? Well, let me give you ten things to do. I think for most of us, uh, one of the things, again, that we started this with, most of us have conflict from time to time in a relationship. And that's not just marriage. That's in any relationship. The question is not will we have it, but how will we respond? I want to give you ten ways that we can respond effectively to conflict, how we can fight fair. Number one, choose your battles wisely. Be willing to let the little things go. Don't get obsessed with the small things. Number two, don't say everything you think. I remember when I was a single guy. I remember I was living with a guy, and he kept breaking up with girl after girl after girl. And, and um, he said, you know, it just seems like you can't be really honest with women. And I said, well, what do you mean? He shared some things that he said. I said, you know, I wouldn't say that if I were you. I don't think that's a good idea. He goes, why not? He goes, I just want to be perfectly honest. I said, you know, that's... That's not, that's not even really biblical. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, when words are many, sin is not absent. When we start venting and sharing everything we think, that's not always from God. Matter of fact, it's usually not. And it's just a matter of time before we step over the line, before we begin to injure, and before it becomes ego-driven rather than relationship-driven. Number three, define what the issue is and state 
what you are feeling. Number four, make a conscious decision to control your anger. Here's one for me. Here's one that I have to constantly be aware of. The Bible tells us in James 1.19 that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And in my economy, I'm thinking, let's just be quick. Let's just be efficient. Let's just get it done yesterday. But let me tell you, I live in a world where yesterday usually doesn't happen. It's today and sometimes it's tomorrow. And what God has to constantly convict me of is efficiency and productivity are not the most holy things that you could do. Sometimes God desires us to be more holy than effective. Number five, don't dwell on the downers. Now, I don't, I don't watch this show, quite frankly, but my wife made me watch one episode of Debbie Downer because she thought it was so funny. And some of you have probably seen that on Saturday night before. But it's the woman that every time you share something good or exciting happens, and she tells the downside of it. And it's so easy for us to get in that downer mentality, especially when we are at odds with you know, one of our relationships or with our spouse. And that negative self-talk comes in and starts telling us, you know, you don't deserve this. You deserve better. You shouldn't have to put up with this. This is ridiculous. No one else would ever tolerate this. He's, he's a loser. She's ridiculous. He's crazy. She's, she's insane. And we start hearing those things. I'm just not even going to listen to this. I'm going to put up with this. And I don't deserve this. Where do you think that message is coming from, by the way? Is that the Spirit of God? That self-talk when we start to dwell on the negatives and tell ourselves that. When we fight, we should never try to hurt or injure. And I mean that verbally or physically. Number seven, learn to cease fire. Learn to quit. There's a point where we can say what we feel, but then we need to shut up and stop and listen. Number eight, be willing to disagree. Hey, you know what? The goal is not that you agree on everything. Number fact, if you both agree on everything, one of you is unnecessary, okay? So, or one of you is just lying. That's what usually what's happening, okay? It's not the issue of agreement. It's the, it's the issue of fellowship. It's okay for you to disagree. Number nine, learn to apologize. Learn to apologize. Even if it's 99.9% their fault in your mind, okay? Learn to apologize. You know, one of the most loving things my wife ever said to me, and um, that's, that's kind of how warped I am. But I'll never forget our first year of marriage. We were, uh, she was working in Toronto. And uh, I went up there to, to see her. And while we were there, uh, the Mavericks were playing in Toronto. I thought, what a great, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see the Dallas Mavericks play in Toronto. I got to see them play here all the time. But I thought it would be great to see them get to play over there. And uh, she thought it would be great for me to take her out to eat and us have a nice dinner uh, on my night up there. And, and I said, you know, I thought we'd already discussed this. This is what I'm going to do. And she said, well, no, we no, you discussed this. And you know how that conversation you maybe had this morning. Uh, nevertheless. And so, you know, we had this big, big fight, big verbal fight. And, you know, I look over and she's just weeping, wailing, because I'm a good Christian minister husband. And um, later on that night, we, we resolved it later on that evening. I said, honey, when uh, when you were crying there and after that all occurred, did you think about, I think I want to get a divorce. I think I'm going to leave this guy. Did that thought move your just enter your head? She goes, no, that's why it's so depressing and discouraging. <laughs> She said, because I know I've been called to be with you. It's not that funny. Number 10, pray and ask forgiveness from God. Let me tell you, 
It's hard to stay mad when you pray with someone. And when Allison and I get on our knees and pray with each other, I can't ever remember a time when we didn't get up and things weren't better, that we didn't have a different perspective and a different spirit. So the question is, are there things in your life today that you need to confess within your relationship? Things that you need to repent of? Things that you need to get on your knees and ask God forgiveness of and begin again. I want to challenge you this morning to experience the divine relationship that he intended. Not the perfect, not even necessarily the one with the most pleasure or the easiest, but the divine nature of God. To be conformed into the image, the Imago Dei of God.